guardian angels and patron saints. Pray for us. Today we celebrate the last of the great feasts around the end of the Easter season and the beginning of ordinary time. Easter concluded with Pentecost a few weeks ago, but following Pentecost, we celebrate the, the Holy Trinity, and then today, the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body and blood of Jesus. Today, I'm going to have to uh, run out of here real quick after Mass, as uh, we're in the midst of preparing all of the carpets out on the streets of uh, next to Blessed Sacrament, where we'll have our annual parish feast, our patronal feast, just like we have uh, at the end of November, the Feast of Christ the King. Blessed Sacrament has Corpus Christi, and so there's a, quite a, a lot of preparation going on for the beautiful procession over there tomorrow, uh, as well as the children making their first communion. So today, it's a, a good moment to just pause and reflect on how, this, how, how the Eucharist really gathers up into itself everything that, that these last weeks have meant to point to. So the resurrection of Jesus the revelation and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God's inner life as a communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a communion of love. That that's really what the Eucharist is meant to, to give us an experience of. And I'd like to use the Catechism just to highlight a couple of important points that I think are really, uh, really beautiful and maybe will help us to get more out of the Eucharist because, let's be honest, maybe, maybe you've asked yourself before, how is it, if this, if this sacrament's so powerful, how is it that I've been receiving it week in and week out for this many years, and I'm still struggling with all of these sins? <laughs> maybe you've asked yourself, am I doing something wrong? Is this, is this sacrament as powerful as they say it is? The answer to that question is yes, far more so. But it's important that we be aware of the ways in which God's grace can land on rocky soil. One of the things that, the, that this weekend is kicking off is what's going to be a three-year process across the United States that we're, being, we're praying for what we're calling a, a Eucharistic revival having lived through the pandemic and the separation from the Eucharist that we all experienced, I think it's an opportune time. It's needed. How can we become more receptive, more enthusiastic, more receptive to what it is that God is wanting to give us in this sacrament? So I'd like to refer you to refer to this passage of the catechism. Part of the catechism that talks about the sacraments. I'm beginning in a paragraph 1128, I believe, that speaks about what the power of the sacraments actually, actually comes to, how it comes to us. The catechism says this. When celebrated worthily in faith... The sacraments confer the grace that they signify. 
There's a lot in that sentence. Sacraments are celebrated. Celebration implies a certain joy, a certain departure from the workaday world. Celebrations don't just fit in as we clock in at the end of the day. Celebrations are things that we make time for, things that we look forward to, things that we savor afterwards. And we celebrate them worthily. And that word shows up in some of the controversies of our present time. Rightfully so. But what makes a worthy celebration? Well, it's It has very little to do with my record as a sinner or as a saint. It has everything to do with my ability to have repented of my failures and placed myself in an attitude of humble desire. To have received the sacraments of reconciliation, right, is to be forgiven for our sins. That doesn't mean that our sins never happened. It means that God has changed us and made us worthy, not by our own merits, but by his completely free gift. That's what it means to be worthy to receive the Eucharist. Right? It doesn't mean that I haven't sinned or that I'm not struggling in some area of my life. Nonetheless, we must repent of those sins and seek God's forgiveness in order to approach the Eucharistic altar. And we have to do so in faith. That's the third word. Celebrated worthily in faith. Faith is a supernatural gift. Faith is what allows us to assent to the truths of God's revealed law of love. Faith is what allows me to entrust myself to those truths. Faith is an act of knowledge, and it's an act of entrustment. All this gets stirred up in these first three words of this paragraph. We have a lot to cover, so I'm going to keep moving. But celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they signify. They give us what they mean. So if the Eucharist means nourishment, bread and wine then they actually give nourishment when celebrated worthily in faith. And they are effective, the catechism continues, because in the sacraments, Christ himself is at work. Christ himself is the one who performs the sacraments. It is he who baptizes. He who acts in his sacraments in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. So it has very little to do with me or you in the sense of what's actually happening. It is actually, by faith, Christ who gives the grace that we're here to receive. So he's present and active and touching each one of us. The Father always hears the prayer of his son's church which in each sacrament expresses her faith in the power of the Spirit. Now, here's a beautiful and interesting analogy that's thought-provoking. As fire transforms into itself everything it touches, so the Holy Spirit transforms 
into the divine life whatever is subjected to his power. Let's break that down a little bit. Fire transforms into itself everything it touches. Imagine building a little fire at the base of a big ponderosa pine tree. And as the flames lick the bark and then the branches of that tree, slowly the fire turns the tree into more fire until eventually there's nothing left. The fire, when it touches something, makes what it touches into itself. That's what happens when God touches our hearts and our lives with one important difference. God does not destroy what he transforms. God does not leave nothing more than a pile of ashes in the place of where our personality used to be. No, he fills it. He elevates what he touches. He doesn't destroy and annihilate it. He elevates it, lifts it, makes it more intense, not less. Makes it more itself. St. Augustine spoke about how in the Eucharist, something important changes in the act of eating. We're accustomed to thinking of eating as taking food and we turn it into ourselves. With the Eucharist, what we consume takes us into him. When we receive Christ in the Eucharist and are nourished by him, what does he do but make us part of his body? Celebrated worthily in faith, this effect never fails because it is Christ himself who acts. Continuing with the catechism, this is the meaning of the church's teaching that the sacraments act by the very act of being performed. That is, in virtue of the saving work of Christ, accomplished once for all, when a sacrament is performed, that grace is given. It does not depend on the relative holiness of the minister or of the people. From the moment that a sacrament is celebrated, in accordance with the intention of the church, the power of Christ and his spirit acts in and through it, independently of the personal holiness of the minister. Now this is important because it shows why it is that I have to be so attentive to doing exactly what the ritual or the form of a sacrament is prescribed to be. I don't have the option to introduce my own variations. If I do so, there's no sacrament. It's, inv it's invalid is the technical term. That is, no sacramental grace is given. If I change the words of institution, for instance, and instead of saying, take this all of you and eat of it, this is my body which is given up for you. If I instead say something like, this is my flesh which is given for the life of the world, broken, poured out, take it, eat it, 
Make it your own and do it in remembrance of me. Guess what? You come forward to receive a piece of bread. Intentional departures from what the church asks of its priests and of its ministers of the sacraments actually invalidates the sacraments. The priest has to adhere to these prescriptions with complete obedience to the form of the sacrament, the words that are to be spoken, the gestures that are to be made, the materials that we're using, all of it. Otherwise, there's no sacrament. I remember a few years ago when I was a campus minister, or a, a, I was involved in campus ministry at the University, uh, Emporia State University. There was a lady, she was, uh, God rest her soul, she's, she's deceased now several years, but she was a very devout lady, and she was very attentive, and she was very meticulous. She was a librarian. And whenever I made a mistake in the Mass, she would come up to me afterwards and she would correct me. She would point out, you didn't say this right. And one time, I was particularly distracted. I think we had a very small chapel, and I think there were some kids who were crying really loud, and I just couldn't, I couldn't keep it together in my, my mind. And I actually said the words of consecration for the chalice while holding the host. That was not a sacrament. We worshiped bread that day. And some of you may remember recently, there was a, 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 a story that was published about a priest in Ohio, I think, who after several years of ordination had to be reordained. And that was because they discovered, after watching a video of his baptism as a child in the 1990s, which does make me feel old, <laughs> that newly ordained priests are now born in the 90s. <laughs> They saw the video, and this particular deacon that had done the baptism said, not I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? The church determined that that was an invalid baptismal formula. He was never baptized. And you can't be ordained a priest if you're not baptized. <laughs> so he had been basically doing what I did that one Sunday for three years. Hearing confessions and absolving people who did not get absolution, anointing people, marrying, all of those things were invalid until he was baptized and reordained validly. So that's not just fussiness. That's not just hair splitting. It's actually fidelity and obedience to, to Jesus' command that we do this in remembrance of him, that, that the authority which he has given to his church is meant to govern and to provide certainty on the part of the faithful. You don't have to, you don't have to guess if Father Nick is validly confecting the Eucharist this weekend because it's been the same every single time since you've been alive. This is a necessary corrective also to the priests, to our illusion that we're the ones that you're here to listen to. To correct our impression, perhaps, that we're the ones who are accomplishing your salvation. This obedience, this self 
abnegation corrals the narcissism of the priest and deflects his egocentricity. It reminds him that the priest is the necessary but the insufficient condition for sacramental grace. And so the catechism concludes that the sacrament is not accomplished by the righteousness of either, of either the celebrant or of the recipient, but by the power of God. And here's the kicker. Nevertheless, the fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. Pour water onto a rock, it flows off. Pour water onto a sponge, it gently soaks in. The disposition is the question of, how do we approach the sacramental mystery? Hardened, bitter, apathetic, or eager, receptive, attentive, hopeful. The disposition matters, and we have to ask God to help us, not only with the grace that he gives to the sacrament, but also from within, so to speak, to make us ready to receive, to make us well-disposed. Right? And ideally, our experience of the Mass is precisely that, that it does dispose us and put us in the right frame of mind and heart to benefit from what's being given. Right? The, the, the ministers in the sanctuary, the musicians, the ushers, the church decoration, right? the, the, all the efforts that go into making this a sacred experience are not the sacramental grace that we're meant to receive, but they dispose us to receive. And so at the beginning of this Eucharistic revival, which is to begin here this Corpus Christi Sunday and last for the next three years, I'd like to propose a little practice that I'd like maybe to continue with for the next few months or even throughout the revival. Who knows? Who knows what the plan is? If you've ever flipped through a missal, you'll see prayers in the back, and missals contain two prayers that almost always show up there. One is a preparation, a prayer of preparation before Mass by St. Thomas Aquinas, and another a, a prayer of thanksgiving after Mass. And what I'd like to do starting next weekend, I'll read you the prayer today, but starting next weekend is to use these prayers as a community before Mass begins, either the priest or maybe a lector coming forward to, to, to pray this and lead the community in prayer, and we're going to have them in the pews for you to join along. And this is the prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, behold, I come to the sacrament of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I come as one infirm to the physician of life, as one unclean to the fountain of mercy, as one blind to the light of eternal brightness, as one poor and needy to the Lord of heaven and earth. Therefore, I implore the abundance of your measureless bounty that you may graciously heal my infirmity, wash my defilement, give light to my blindness, enrich my poverty, and clothe my nakedness, that I may receive the bread of angels, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, with such reverence and humility, such contrition and devotion, 
such purity and faith, such purpose and intention as may be profitable to the salvation of my soul. Grant, I pray, that I may receive not only the sacrament of our Lord's body and blood, but also the reality and power of that sacrament. O most gentle God, grant that I may so receive the body of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, which he took from the Virgin Mary, that I may be made worthy to be incorporated into his mystical body and to be numbered amongst his members. O most loving Father, grant that I may at last gaze forever upon the unveiled face of your beloved Son, whom I, a wayfarer, propose to receive now veiled under these species, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. There's a reason that's been included in the Missal. It says so beautifully and succinctly with such breadth and comprehensiveness what it means to be well disposed. And so we beg you, Lord, for the gift to be rightly disposed at this and every Mass, to be protected from distraction and apathy. For the glory and honor of your name, for the conversion of sinners, the renewal of your church, and the salvation of our souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.